think I was the first winemaker to walk in there and go, wow, we can we can make some great wine in here. Cement tanks, not as, no stainless steel anywhere. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Ex Animo Wine Co. podcast. I am David Clark. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy this. And if you do like it, maybe listen to the other, some of the other episodes and share around and share amongst people you think would also enjoy it. Um, this episode, we have Niels Verberg, winemaker and owner of Luddite Wines based in Bot River or Botrefir. Um, he and his wife Penny have been there doing their thing since the... Uh, 2000. So before that, he was the winemaker at Beaumont. Uh, was the winemaker when they pioneered, among other uh, producers in in South Africa, uh, wooded Chenin Blanc with their Hope Marguerite, uh, which was a game changer at the time. Um, one of the older new wave guys, and, and one of the, the guys who have been going making his own wines under his own steam, under his own conditions for for a long time. A really interesting guy. Claim to fame is their Shiraz. Uh, so we discussed their, uh, obviously their Shiraz and where it came from, why it's called Shiraz, not Syrah, and the style, which tends to be quite uh, big and, and, and intense and, and powerful. We chat about uh, where they've come from, how they got to get where they are now. So I started out by asking him um, how Luddite got started. I think like any self-respecting winemaker, at some stage you want to do your, do your own thing. And when I started my winemaking uh, career, or when I started my first job, I, you know, I said that you know, I would, when I was at Beaumont, that at some stage I'd like to do my own thing. When did you and, start at Beaumont? Uh, so I started at Beaumont at the end of 95. Okay. Uh, after being overseas, uh, you know, when, when I finished my studies, South Africa was still in lockdown and there was... There was no real job opportunities in the wine industry. We were still in sanctions and pretty much the wine industry had stagnated to a point that there was no stimulus. And of the uh, of the 10 guys I studied with, only one of us got a job uh, straight away. The rest of them uh, got jobs later. Okay. And I thought it was a perfect opportunity to go and broaden my horizons and try and make wine in as many different countries as possible. So Penny and I left, um, yeah, left South Africa always with the idea of coming back, uh, you know, once things had settled down, you know, South Africa was obviously in a state of flux. They were just talking about releasing Mandela and things were, you know, there was no certainty. So we based ourselves in London and I did vintages of, you know, around the world and trying to, you know, pick up. Uh, garner more uh, more knowledge and more experience when it comes to wine. I think all of us come out of university thinking we're either you know a winemaker or a um, architect or whatever field you're in, and you actually you actually know nothing, and and that's the frightening part. And and so I think the more vintages one can get under your belt, the better equipped you are to deal with the next one. And I think that was that was the main reason for going to you know travel and, and, and see different wineries, see different, steal with your eyes and, um, you know, make wines in different countries, pick up more experience. And then when we came back uh, in, in 95, uh, I did a short stint at Simonsich filling in for one of their winemakers that had gone and done a harvest overseas. And yeah, I, I sort of started at Beaumont and, uh, and I just, you know, loved, loved the sort of the area Bot River was was you know brand new as far as uh, finding its way in the wine industry, and there were only you know two wineries, Wildecrans and and Beaumont at the time. So I'm assuming that Joan, was under Sebastian's old man role. Is that is that would that be right? Yeah, yeah. So when Jane and Raul approached me to say, "Would you like to come and have a look at the cellar?" and and we seriously thinking of uh, starting up the cellar again. I, I suppose luckily I just finished a vintage in Chile and worked in some really old wineries. Um, so when I walked into the old Beaumont cellar, I thought, "Wow, this is um, this is pretty special." You know, I, I'd worked in some really rundown, antiquated cellars, and and you know, I think I was the first winemaker to walk in there and go, "Wow, we can we can make some great wine in here. Cement tanks, not as no stainless steel anywhere." And 
you know, we we obviously they had the vineyards because they were delivering fruit to Valisdorf Co-op. Yeah. And you know, it was a it was a clean slate, and it was nice to be you know the the first first uh, you know Jane had made some wine, and and on the success of I think her, her first Pinotage is the nineteen ninety five Pinotage, which I bottled when I started there. Um, I thought was a particularly special Pinotage and was a fantastic wine. And, and if you get a good bottle, still is a fantastic wine. Mm. And so one could see the potential that was there. There was, um, I'd been lucky enough to work with some Shannon in Australia and a lot of the farm was planted to Shannon. So the excitement to work with Shannon was there. And yeah, so we set up, you know, taking this sort of disused cellar that had been standing idle for a long time and got it up and running. In fact, I was telling telling my kids the other day that the first harvest we did, we, uh, we the pumps we had, we were, they were sort of big belt pumps with you know, a large wheel and a small wheel and a and pretty much a hand, uh, you know, you could crank the, the one, you could crank with a handle and we pumped wine with that with a handle and the other one we managed to get the motor to work but it was pretty scary stuff and uh, quite rudimentary but you know the wines that came out of that first vintage were very exciting uh, no, very I proceeded cool. to lose 14 I, I lost 14 kilos in that first harvest because <laughs> running around and running around in a cellar that you know that, that stage you know we didn't know what worked and what didn't work and yeah. and which which tanks leaked and which tanks didn't leak and it was it was exciting times and, uh, just a quick one um where, where in australia did you work with shannon i'm assuming that was in like wa or something was it or yeah i was at uh, at well they say horton in south africa oh, yes. or horton there Houghton, Houghton here so i was at yeah. Houghton wines or horton wines in wa making some white, white burgundy Making yeah, the famous white burgundy, which <laughs> is where the Shannon part came in. Yeah, fair enough. And yeah, and and I mean that it was obviously a, a serious eye opener, and and it was a really big setup. Yeah, they would have been but pumping a, a lot of wine back then, wouldn't they? They would have been they would have been almost at their peak. They were really, they were at their peak. They were flying. Yeah. There was uh, we had three winemakers on, and I was lucky enough to walk on uh, work under Paul Lapsley who. You know, later hit up Hardy's, I think, at one stage. Yeah. And also became quite a big shot at Accolade. Um, I so, think Butch and Susie yeah, Arlight worked there as well at a later, in a sort of maybe 10 years later after you did. Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah, know that. Okay. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. So, so you were at, at um, Beaumont 95, and then uh, you, you said you're always going to sort of do your own thing. How did that, how did you transition away from Beaumont? What was that? Uh, and towards yeah, I, I, I just, you know, I'd, once we, you know, I did a lot, obviously, you know, Beaumont was a you know, full-time job of doing the winemaking plus the marketing role was looking after the vineyards. Okay. So, you know, in the, in the marketing travels, I, you know, got to meet a lot of people and I had a chance meeting with a guy called Hilly Mayer who uh, had some spare cash and, he was uh, very enthusiastic about the wines I was making and, and, you know, I suppose fairly regularly, you know, people with a bit of money would say, listen, we really like your wines. If you, uh, if you ever think of doing something on your own, let us know. We'll, um, we'll put some money up. But, you know, partnerships are the worst ships around and you've got to, you've got to make the call. <laughs> and and you, you've got to make the call and find the right person. You know, I think... Uh, uh, it's not about it's not about money, you know. That's that's the big thing. People don't realise that you know it takes a bit more than money to get things going. Yeah, it can be and, quite liberating uh, or or a jail sentence, can it? Exactly, and anyway. and I was you know we had I had lots of guys offering offering money to to start something, and sort of in 1999, I I was very lucky to meet um, Hilly Mayer, who was at a at a what was then the old uh, Pinotage auction in uh, Hamilton Russell um, in December. So all the rich valleys were down and, and it was, it was the social event in those days. It was quite the thing. You didn't, you definitely didn't want to miss that. And uh, he came up to me while we were showing the wines before the auction. And he said, you know, I really love these wines and can I come and see you? So um, he, 
one rainy day, I think, or maybe it was a sunny day actually, and the kids were all, his kids and the family were on the beach and he snuck off to come and taste the rest of the Beaumont range and pretty much spent most of the morning just, you know, sitting in the corner of the table, watching the world go by and, and sort of listening to all the tastings. And we just got chatting and he said, you know, I, I really, you know, would love to get involved. I'm lucky enough to have some spare cash. And I said, well, it's probably too early in the plot. I need to, I need to make more of a name for myself in the South African wine industry. And I need to find my feet more. And, you know, so uh, he said, well, that's fine. No problem. You know, whenever, whenever you think it's right, give me a shot. And uh, he was the first person that offered money that, that actually seemed genuine about the whole thing. But more importantly, he was a wine person. He understood wine. He went on holidays to wine regions and he, and he understood food. So that was, that was the most important thing. Yeah. And yeah, I sort of, towards the end of 1999, I, I sort of felt that I'd made enough, uh, Enough of an inroad and hopefully enough of enough of a name in the in South African industry. Obviously, bear in mind that industry was very very small at the time. Yeah. And you know there weren't a lot of wines out there. So you know if you were making something half decent, your name got out there quite quickly, and we were making fantastic wines down at at, at Beaumont. So I phoned him up out of the blue. He didn't say Niels who or whatever. He said that's fantastic. You know, jump on a plane and um, and we. And we did everything on a handshake. I said, this is what I want to do. He said, fantastic. Let me know how much money you think you're going to need. And we started off as... And then, uh, and then at a zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, we've, we've done, we've did everything, we did everything on a shoestring. There's no, um, you know, we've, we definitely, I think that's been the saving graces that we did. Uh, you know, I've always been, I suppose maybe it's the Dutch blood coming through, but I've, you know, I've never, and, and maybe it was also working in a small family winery to start with, is that you turn every penny over twice before you think about spending it, and mm. maybe even maybe even three times. And I think that, that certainly helped because we didn't go and, you know, put up a fancy, you know, seller and, and buy a fancy press and all that sort of stuff. We really walked before we ran, and we're still probably walking. But we, you know, we we, you know, we did things slowly and 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 made sure that things made sense and we didn't overcapitalize. And it was frightening times, you know. We, yeah. you know, we finally in in, you know, you got to put a lot of money into something like that, and it, and then you realization that, you know, that money doesn't just with any business, you know, when you sell that first bottle, it's it's not the very next day. It's it's three, four years down the line and and you've got to be in a position to hold your nerve uh, long enough to get that sort of cash flow starting to come in. Yes. And yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it was, you know, we were very, very lucky in the sense that we started with Luddite. The first vintage of Luddite was uh, 2000 and we started with 6,000 bottles and we didn't sell it to everybody. I literally approached a good retailer in each center in South Africa and one importer. And we were lucky that within three months, the whole lot was sold. You know, it was, it, it hit the ground, it hit the ground running. It got a following. I think, you know, the wine, you know, we, I've never ever bottled anything. I haven't been 100% happy with. And I think the, you know, the, the ground, you know, it was, it was something that sort of luckily, pretty much sold out straight away and I and yeah. that gave us the confidence and also obviously a bit of money to carry on with the with the next uh, with the next vintage and, and so forth. And we slowly we slowly grew, you know, not in big chunks, but slowly, slowly and, and made sure everything made sense before we took the next step. And I think that's probably been been our saving grace. And so at the time when you released that first vintage, um, what what was the price? I mean, it was it was quite a sort of a um, uh, an aspirational price, wasn't it at the time? It was it was very interesting. I had you know I've always said to Penny, I never really want to charge um, anything that I wouldn't personally be happy paying for. You know, you've got to mm. still be offering. Doesn't matter whether you're at five hundred rand or fifty rand, you can get great value at five hundred and crappy value at fifty. 
Yes. And I just felt uh, I, had a, I had a figure of 85 Rand in my head at the time. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, as, as I always tell people, when it comes to the final blend, I always sit down and I drink a whole bottle of my own and, I, and, and make sure that I can comfortably drink it because then I know it's in balance. Mm -hmm. And I, I was sort of halfway through the bottle and I thought, you know, this wine is it's far too good for 85 Rand. And uh, so we, you know, in 2000, I, you know, we released that wine probably halfway through 2002, I think. Um, I said, you know, I said to Penny, I'm going to stick my neck out here. I don't, I think we can price this a bit more. Mm. And um, that was, we put it at 125 Rand to answer your question. And at yeah. the time, that was the second most expensive wine in South Africa. Yeah, right. So, yeah. And it's, and it's still and it's still sold out it's still sold out you know really really quickly yeah and so we thought well with that confidence with the 2001 we'll put the price up to 145 rand and yes. i don't know what happened to the industry in that sort of window of a year but we were then not even in the top 50 uh, dearest wines yeah Africa. right because was a bit of an explosion yeah it was it was quite something but you know that didn't that didn't concern us. As I say, we we wanted a price what we felt we'd be happy, you know, paying for the wine, and it's uh, yeah. So it, you know, we grew that. Uh, you know, I was still at Beaumont. I was making you know the Beaumont wines and the Luddite wines, mm -hmm. and then I think you know nat the natural progression of that is that you know people started coming into the tasting room and asking for Luddite instead of Beaumont, and you know that made things. That made things uncomfortable, and and you know, I, it, luckily it coincided also with Sebastian finishing his travels and his studies. Yeah. And uh, so the 2000 and vintage, uh, Sebastian joined the cellar, and the nice thing was that I could do the vintage with him because it is quite a quirky cellar, and you know, you need to know what things to kick and where to kick them to make them work. Yes. And, <laughs> It was nice to, it was really nice to hand that over to him. And, uh, and then I finished up there August, August 2003 and, and moved on to, moved on to our farm. And, you know, that coincided with us building a house. Um, you know, so small steps, having to borrow some more money, obviously that, you know, we, we borrowed that from the bank and, um, yeah, it, it, I think the, the big thing was that everything grew organically you know in a way in its own time yes um but yeah big you know if you think those of you who've been lucky enough to come to luddite the you know this was just a little hill uh, a rump of a hill full of port jacksons and blue gums and uh some beautiful know, australian uh, flora yes exactly <laughs> and uh, we we curse we curse them every day because yeah. it's yeah. I'm looking out the window looking out the window and I, my neighbor doesn't believe in alien clearing so yeah we 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 spend at least uh, I suppose a couple of days every month going around just uh, cutting out small port jacksons and pulling them out and making sure that you know our farm stays clean of them yeah but yeah, so 2003, you know, we, we finished up and, uh, you know, the nice thing is that, you know, I'm next door and uh, I think the beauty of Bot River is that we, a small wine region, we can all share ideas and share knowledge and sit around the table. And, and I think that's really important in, in, in a small wine region. And also because they're all family owned, that's exciting. Hmm. So, so how many kilometers you know, lie between the Luddite farm and the, uh, and the Beaumont farm, like as the, as the crow flies, but it'd be, wouldn't be many, would crow it? Flies probably, there's a crow flies. I reckon I could get there with two drivers. Okay. Maybe a wedge. Right. So like so, a kilometer, less than a kilometer, obviously. Yeah. I suppose as the crow flies, probably 800 meters. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so you didn't, you yeah, didn't move so, far from Beaumont. I didn't move far. I mean, they are my immediate neighbours on my uh, on my southern boundary. Yes. And yeah, you know, and the nice thing is, I can you know, I, I, I've got this fantastic view of their vineyards as well, and uh, so it looks like I've got a lot bigger farm than I actually have. Yeah. Right. Um, 
just wanted to, to ask you about the style of the Luddite Shiraz, um, about the nomenclature first, calling it a Shiraz rather than a, a Syrah. I mean, the Luddite Shiraz is uh, known to be quite a powerful, ripe wine, uh, big in stature. I mean, people sort of comp compare the wine to yourself in terms of personality, in terms of big and, and bold. And um, uh, I, I was wondering if that was a deliberate thing or was that your interpretation of... Uh, Shiraz or Syrah in the area, or is that how you feel that uh, Shiraz or Syrah should be should be done? Or what, just wanted to get your thoughts on the, the stylistic choices made um, with the Luddite Shiraz. Yeah, I think um, you know, I obviously tasted a hell of a lot of Shiraz uh, before going to Australia, and then when I was in Australia, you know, really felt that they had a particular style, which when I was in Australia. I was quite keen on. Uh, I'm not too keen on it now. Um, I think when you're there, you almost, you know, one gets used to that style. You, your, your palate gets used to it. You get quite excited with it. I spend quite a lot of time in the UK drinking those big wines that that were, you know, put put Australia on the map in the early sort of uh, early 90s in the UK market. And I suppose when you're drinking them out of context with what you really want to be drinking, I find them, I find them too over the top and too, too intense and too extracted. And you know, even though our wines are big, they are half the size of Australian wines when it comes to, for me, complexity of flavour and, and balance. Mm. And you know, I I did I did a lot of vertical tastings of of Shiraz, and in fact, one of my tastings that I presented just after leaving Elsenberg was uh, that that Shiraz is a far better wine at 14 alcohol than it is at 13 alcohol in South Africa. In South and Africa, okay. That, yeah, and, and at the time, at the time, maybe a lot of that was virus influenced, but you've okay. also got to remember that in, in 19, 1990, uh, you know, Shiraz was still a novelty varietal in South Africa. There was 1.8, uh, get my figures right up. It was either 0.8 or 1.8 of total plantings was uh, was Shiraz, and that was nothing. You know, percent, you mean? Uh, percent, yeah, yeah. Of, the, of the total planting. So that was yeah. almost non-existent. And you know, I grew up drinking a lot of the old Hartenbergs, the old Sunfeets, and so that was my sort of grounding with Shiraz in this country. And then obviously, mm. when you travel, you start tasting all the French examples and Australian examples. And I, I just felt that, you know, when, when I got back to South Africa, we were, you know, we, we, with Raul Beaumont, we were the first guys to plant Shiraz uh, from Solaris Pass down to Cape Agulhas. That was the first Shiraz plantings. And on the, on the success of those sort of, you know, grapes and, and seeing what they could do, it definitely, you know, we, we pick on flavor and, you know, in the Botro area, 14, 14 alcohol, some years at 15 alcohol, those flavors come through. So it's more a reflection of the vintage than a, and, and obviously stylistically because of how we make the wine, uh, that style comes through. But it's, you know, I would still probably get that same weight and same texture and same balance at 13 and a half alcohol. Um, but yes, and and I'm and I'm some I'm sometimes amazed that people say, "Oh, your Shiraz is so big," and I don't personally I don't find it big, and maybe it's because I've got used to it over the years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's just the I think it's just the uh, the number on the on the bottle that says you know fourteen and a half or fifteen percent that or fifteen point five yeah, that people sort of focus on. So that's why I've asked you about it because it is yeah. it is against sort of the the the, uh, the current of, trend yeah. current trend or you know or movement I suppose in trying to trying to get sort of natural acid back into the, the wine and as a consequence um, uh, picking earlier to maintain that. So it's just interesting to get your point of view on it. That's all. Well, we've, you know, that's a very interesting point because we've never had to certify. So mm. we, yeah, very interesting. We those, we're very lucky because we dry land that we can pick at 25 and a half and, and we still have natural, natural acids in the finished wine of five and a half, five, sometimes six. Uh, with pHs of 3.4 at picking, and I, you know, I think that's the big thing. If, if mm. 
you know, up on our whites we pick early because we want to keep that natural acidity. But for some reason, and hopefully it's obviously our soils, but I think the big reason is obviously the small crop load and and not irrigating is that we get this lovely natural acidity and, and natural pH. So we don't have to fiddle with anything. And for me, the number on the back, 14, 15 alcohol is just a number. You know, yeah. you can have... You can have wines tasting alcoholic at 13 and a half if they don't have the structure and texture to balance that. And you can have wines tasting green at 15 alcohol if they don't, if, if the, um, if they weren't ripe in the first place. And some no, yeah, you're going to get green flavors because the, you know, that was the reflection of the vintage. Yeah. But I, I, you know, the funny part is that I don't look at it, you know, uh, you know, the last three vintages, 13, 14, 15, are probably three light years in a row, but if you look at you look at 12, 11 and twelve, the hot dry years, they they are big wines, and twelve to me was a really really big wine. But if I go and drink it now, I think, geez, this is a gorgeous, beautiful, elegant creature, and yet it is fifteen alcohols, probably fifteen point two. Yeah. But yeah, I open the bottle, and the last thing that comes to your mind is that wow, this is alcoholic. It, it yeah. doesn't, and I think that's well, check, well, that's well made port. It you know, eighteen, nineteen percent can be refreshing. Um, so it's not only the the number on the back for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think we've we've always said we want to the one constant must be the quality, but we want to reflect the vintage. And uh, so some vintages, sure, they're going to end up being fifteen alcohol, fifteen and a half sometimes. Um, I've, I must say the 2000, 2002, which did a, you know, probably a lot of people, uh, I suppose we finally had enough volume for a lot of people to, to be exposed to that wine. There was a 15.5 on the label and, um, a lot of people probably still think that that's the style of wine we make and, and, and it isn't, you know, we just, mm. uh, and, and yet if you can get hold of a bottle of 2002 and open it, 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 it tastes gorgeously balanced you know and that's yeah. that's the nice thing I think and and you'll you know you'll often hear me talking about balance and I think everything in in wine is about balance uh, well everything in life obviously but the you know you've got to make sure that you interpret the vintage correctly and if you've got a hot vintage and a big vintage then you've got to make sure that you give that wine enough time on skins and you give it enough punch downs to build the structure of the wine to balance the fruit and the, and the size of the wine. Yeah. Um, you can't, you, you know, if you, you can't just say, oh, we're going to give this one punch down and we're going to ferment it slightly cool uh, and then not expect to have some sort of alcohol showing in the finished wine because there's nothing mm -hmm. to, you know, there's nothing to offset or to, to balance that, uh, uh, that alcohol. Well, that leads so, me perfectly into the next part of what I wanted you to maybe uh, chat to us about. In terms of what you do in the winery um, uh, with the Shiraz, uh, obviously it varies, as you say, from vintage to vintage, but is there sort of a, a preference or a, a, a sort of a rough guideline that you that you want to follow in the cellar in terms of what you do and when you do it? No, not really. I th I think you know. I suppose if you if I compare the notes from year to year, they probably have a, obviously a, a general thread running through them, just as the wines have a general thread. Um, but there's a lot of it is is interpretation and and decisions made on the hoof, literally looking at what the what the grapes look like, what the grapes taste like, uh, how ripe they are, how unripe they are, how many green berries are in there. Do the stalks look ripe? Uh, those decisions will will make, you know, will will force us into certain directions and certain decisions on our wood use. And I and I and I think the three big things that you as a uh, the influence of the winemaker and the seller, the three big things are probably your time of picking, the decision to pick. That's your first big reason. The second is your time on skins and your choice and time in barrels. So I suppose it's four things. There's probably mm. a few more, but so typically the, you said you're picking at around about 25 belling um, and sort well, of rough, trying, more or less. You know, again we pick on we pick on flavour. We go through. We do obviously a bit of our, our um, sugar sampling in the beginning just to just to track it a bit, but then we don't worry about. You know, when it, the closer it gets to picking, we're not worrying about the sugar. Yeah, okay. Um, we're picking then, 
then we're picking on on taste. So we walk through and we taste and we taste and we taste and then we get those flavors that we that we want in the berry. That's when we pick. Mm -hmm. I can't expect the flavors in the berry to be in the wine, uh, or if they're not in the berry, to finally be in the wine. So yeah, that is that is what we do, and we pick. And sometimes we you know we get scared shitless because we suddenly see <laughs> bloody hell with this twenty. How did this get to 25 and a half? Mm. And some years, you know, we pick it, it's 23 and a half. So yeah. it's all about the, it's all about the flavor. Yeah. And yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, we, because we've got such small berries in those dry years, you get a little bit of raisining going on. And when you send that, you know, I always do, I never do a juice analysis. We, when we crush the fruit and we have it on skins, I always leave it for a full 24 hours before I send it off to the lab to see what we're dealing with. And, um, you know, we'll get an analysis back 24 and a half. We go, fantastic. It's in the slot. S is looking great. pH is looking great. All good. And then we'll, you know, we'll carry on and we'll make the wine. And when we send that first finished wine analysis through and it comes back and it says 15 and a half alcohol. So, well, that's impossible. How's that even make sense? And that, <laughs> It's magic, Niels, magic. It's magic. And it's just those small berries that you know don't get broken up initially, those raisins that don't get broken up initially, and then they you know, they end up, you know, getting into the final wine, obviously, and, and that you know that, that pushes the alcohol up a little bit. So uh, but the big thing for me is is you know, we 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 I suppose if to, to answer your question, we uh, we crush uh, the bigger batches. We crush. We go into stainless steel tank. Uh, we put it under cooling, and we leave it under. When I say cooling, I've got the most rudimentary Mickey Mouse cooling plant you've ever seen in your life. But it's the we try and keep it at around about 16 degrees, and you know that means that sort of natural ferment's not going to kick in straight away. It'll keep it sort of honest for maybe three, four days, sometimes five days. But let's say by day three, we start looking in the top of the tank and when we see some ferments starting to happen, then you know, the next day we'll start with our, uh, our pump overs and uh, we'll keep, then we'll switch the cooling off uh, so that the initial ferment can get nice and active and there can be a really uh, exponential growth in the yeast cells and that everything, all the conditions are nice and favorable. And then we'll switch the cooling and obviously that initial color burst as well. And then we'll switch the cooling on slowly and, and I tend to want to ferment around about 24, 22 to 24 degrees because the cooler you ferment, the more fruit you retain. And um, so, so that's generally for the bulk of the ferment, that's where we'll be. And then towards the last sort of five bulling, we switch your cooling off again. I always say to everybody that works in the cellar, picture yourself as a yeast cell. You know, when are you going to, as you know, if you're a person, picture yourself, when are you going to work your best and when are you going to perform at your optimum, when you're comfortable. So make sure that the yeast are comfortable. Make sure that they've got the right temperature, that they're getting enough air, uh, all those sort of things. So... Um, we're very lucky in the sense, and I think that's, you know, the style of our wine, even though it is big, the one big saving grace is our ferments here go unbelievably dry. Mm. And because of that dryness, your palate is always refreshed. You know, if our wines were 15 alcohol and they had four or five grams residual sugar, which most wines at 15 alcohol have, then, then you've got a problem. Then you've got a big floppy Dolly Parton monster of a wine. But... Our, if I look at the residual sugars we've got back from this vintage, Dolly Parton's pretty one, good, mate. Don't don't knock her. Sorry, Dolly Parton's pretty good. I like Dolly Parton. Yeah, yeah, no, she's all right. But she's a legend. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I can handle a whole bottle of her. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so the um, maybe a quickie, but nothing, not a whole, <laughs> whole evening. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah. Each to each to their own, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Just a taste Just a taste there. Just, just, just a little, little hors d'oeuvre, maybe. Yeah, a full a whole bottle of something of you know that's Dolly Partney is is hard work. Mm. But 
the you know if i look at this year's vintage we you know i'm i'm amazed some of the i've never seen sugars this dry in red wine we've got sugars of 1.2 residual 1.4 1.8 i think is the highest and mm. that that is amazing you know you're going to have uh we're looking at i think about an average of 14 alcohol this year so you've got the, a 14 alcohol the, one this is sorry sorry to interrupt but that's the 2020 harvest you're talking about yeah, yeah yeah so you know and 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 i think that's because we pay attention make sure we're paying attention a lot on the on the on the sort of high on the actual ferments and making sure that the ferments are are healthy and uh and and the timing of when you do things uh, so we we make sure that the you know with such a healthy ferment we're getting these really dry sugars and that that keeps the wine refreshing even though they are big in style the the other you know the other thing is that we try and keep the wine on lease and we we try and use that lease as much as possible so even when we you know depending on the year depending on the fruit quality um if we've got exemplary fruit quality we'll leave the wine post maceration five six weeks basically as long as i can hold my nerve and then then we'll press but when we press we try and keep that lease uh with the wine as long as possible in the in the juice tray which is obviously now got wine in it we're stirring up that lease as we're pumping it away all the time yeah and that little bit of texture that little bit of texture also helps the structure of the wine uh obviously makes the wine a lot smoother as well earlier on um and then only the only time we sort of as you know we leave the lease behind is on that first racking um okay out of tank into barrel after malolactic uh, some of the smaller batches, we leave the wines on gross lease in the, well, not pretty much gross lease in the barrel for the, for the whole two years. Um, yeah. but we don't botanize it like we would with the whites. But yeah, I, th I think, you know, obviously stylistically, and as I say, if you looked at my notes, there would be a trend and a, and a thing, but it, it's a lot of the decisions and the, the smaller decisions, and I think it's all those small decisions and attention to detail that make the difference between making good wine and great wine. Mm -hmm. And and we need to make sure that we we follow those things and we don't take our eye off the ball. And and just you know, I think a lot of the things you do you do secondhand without even knowing you're doing it. But they are probably quirky things that we do do in the cellar, and, yeah. and they do make a difference, and they do show in the wine later. And, uh, Maybe that's that's a good thing, but I, uh, yeah, the other big decision is is what wood you're going to use, and and again, that's a decision based on the size of the wine. I'm always amazed that winemakers order barrels in October. How can you order something for a wine that you don't know what it's like yet? You know, it just it's beyond baffling. So I I drive the barrel guys up the wall because I only order my barrels in March when I know what the wine's like. Yeah. So, well, I'm maybe gonna, maybe, maybe they just know what the wine's like earlier, Neil. So maybe it just takes you six months extra. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd love to see those. I'd love to see those magicians knowing that what the vintage and how the wine's going to turn out <laughs> before it goes. <laughs> but anyway, so, so that's that's so another what, strange quirk of ours. We make sure that you know I want to match the wine to the barrel, not the other way around. Yeah. And, and what and what, uh, and what wood do you tend to use more or less? I mean, obviously, as you said, it changes. But what uh, what's your what, what's the sort of because it's in in grand terms, it's usually two years in 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 barrels and then two years in bottle before the wine's released. What sort yeah, of percentages yeah, yeah. of you know of sort of new and used or different coopers etc. Um, does those two years in barrel tend to tend to look like from year to year? Yeah, I, the. You know, again, the, the depending on the size of the wine, I generally find in the bigger, hotter years we go up to about thirty percent new wood, mm -hmm. uh, and the cooler vintages will go down to twenty. Um, and then, and then some years, you know, when it comes to making the final blend, there's been two vintages that we've we've culled all the new wood out of the out of the wine completely. So yeah, because right. um, we just felt it was too over the top, too big, too too showy you know, not our style, you know, and so um, that, that, that's a different thing. That's, you know, when we're sitting around the table doing the final blend and seeing what works and what doesn't work. Yes. Um, so, but the general school of thought uh, or rule of thumb for us is bigger years, more new wood, uh, more feminine, cooler years, less new wood. 
and then the balance would be second, third, fourth, full, fifth, full, sixth, full, probably. Um, and yeah, two years in two years in barrel. I generally split it between about four coopers that I've been happy to work with over the years, and and we always take on one new cooper every year just to see what's out there, and maybe in case we need, you know we're missing something. Yeah. And I don't. I don't really compare the barrels until the wine's been in wood for at least 18 months. Uh, and then I'll taste through. And if I, if I like what those, that new Cooper's doing, then we might take on a little more of their barrels the next year. And, and the wine barrel, you know, scoring less favorably, we probably buy less of those barrels. So it's not an exact science, but it's, mm. it's in our own mind's eye. We, we work through it, but I, I definitely, I definitely wouldn't use just one cooper. I don't think, um, I think very much like the more different components you can get, the more complex you're making the wine. And, and that's also with, you know, with blends, I think as well, you know, when you're making up blends, the different components you can get in and, and the more different batches, uh, the more complex you make the wine. And, and even on the Ladacha Rose, even though the fruit all comes from, from our vineyards, you know, we've got different clones, we've got different, um, you know, different picking times and also different barrel batches. And, and as those batches, you know, when we sit around the table, we generally have six or seven different portions that we need to fiddle uh, to make sure that they fit into the blend. And if it doesn't fit, then too bad. You know, it's, uh, in the past, we've obviously sold it in, in, uh, in bulk, but, um, you know, we've, we, uh, you know, we put that into the saboteur, not because it's a second grade wine, but because it didn't fit into the blend. And it's still a great wine, it's just didn't fit in stylistic. Just a different style. Yeah. Um, what year was the first um, Luddite Shiraz to have 100% Luddite farm fruit in it? Uh, 2009, which was, which was really great because it, was, it coincided with the, the first vintage in our own cellar. So uh, I went perfect. to cellar space up until, up until then. And the real, the real crux of that, and the real, the most important part of that is that was the first year that I could be 100% sure that we had our own yeast in the cellar. I see. It was a brand new cellar. No other grapes had been in here, and uh, that meant that we could, you know, that 2009 vintage was all our own fruit. Yes. And meant that the meant that the, the overriding, hopefully dominant yeast in the cellar is our own yeast. The Obviously endemic, the endemic yeast is a lot of yeast. Yeah. 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 Let's let's hope. I mean, I do buy in grapes from other regions, but that only came later. Yeah. So the first first three vintages um, very much uh, our own fruit. So hopefully that dominant yeast uh, or the yeast from our own farm is, is the dominant one that hopefully takes all our ferments through. Yeah, we'll never cool. know for sure, but, uh, but the theory behind it makes sense. And when you, when you um, labelled the wine uh, first up, was there even a thought in your mind to call it Luddite Syrah or is it always going to be Luddite Shiraz? No, it was always, uh, yeah, I have very strong thoughts about this and a lot of them, you know, one got published in the in the Telegraph on the Sunday newspapers in Amsterdam, but you know, it's, journalists mustn't ask you when you've had too much to drink. But anyway, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> okay. So I've always, you know, we're not a French-speaking country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's I think a lot of Syrahs are called Syrah because it's a bit more fashionable and maybe a bit more stylistic. Uh, not stylistic, actually, that's the wrong word. It's a, it's become a little bit more of a marketing word as opposed to Shiraz. They've gone with Syrah. It's more saleable rather say, than, French, yeah. Yeah, we're not a French-speaking country. I think it confuses the crap out of the general wine drinker. They think it's two different grapes. Um, yeah, so my comment to this journalist was that, you know, we're not a, firstly, we're not a French-speaking country. Secondly, you can't call a 15 and a half alcohol hot climate Shiraz Syrah, it's like you know, <laughs> calling a calling a WWE wrestler ballerina. Yes. And thirdly, it's for and thirdly, it's for people with short dicks. So that was my comment. <laughs> and uh, he, he published it verbatim. Oh, nice. In the newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, people are going to listen to it now as well. So never mind. It's yeah. out there. It's out there already. So, but yeah, I I would I would probably drop Shiraz off the label before I use Syrah, to be honest. 
Oh, you just um, called it Luddite. Just called it Luddite. Mm -hmm. uh, I did cam. I did canvas uh, all my importers at about six years ago, and uh, I said, you know, everybody knows the Luddite is a Shiraz. Surely I can just leave it off and call it Luddite. And they said, whoa, hold on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Fucking maybe relax, Neil. <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe another 40 years and that's when uh, maybe you can drop it off. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to maybe entertain that further down the line. Um, mm. I think hopefully by then we've made enough of a name that people understand it. And, and there's a good chance that, you know, in the future we might you know, not have a hundred percent Shiraz in there. It could have a smidgen of Grenache. See, we've got some Grenache vines that mm. I'm looking at at the moment that are trying their best to grow as much as possible before the growing season stops. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, we've got some more on the farm and yeah, with my guild wines, I've been experimenting with uh, small fractions uh, of Mouvad uh, with the Shiraz. And uh, now we've, you know, experimenting with a bit of Grenache. So there might come a time where it'll probably still always be, you know, more than 90% uh, Shiraz, but uh, it might have a smidgen of something else. So I think when that starts happening more and more, then maybe to get to the point where we drop the Shiraz off there. But I've never, uh, you know, each of their own, uh, but I must say, I, I think this Syrah thing is a crock of shit. To be honest. Fair enough. <laughs> I think like a strong opinion, Niels. Um, <laughs> And so the other three wines that you make under the Luddite label is the Luddite Chenin, uh, which is a bit of a rare beast. Um, maybe just run us through that very quickly. Yeah, it's it's been uh, quite a frustrating journey. I I think the you know having made so much Chenin uh, in my life, and I've I've got a I love Chenin. I drink a lot of it, and I just think it's such a lovely grape, especially in Bot River. It it does really really well. I've been lucky enough to work with really old vines. Uh, when I was down at Beaumont, and um, you know, there's a there's a lovely underlying salty salinity to the to the Shannons that come out of this area, and I just you know I I, I suppose not wanting to uh, take too much of a leap of faith and experiment too much, even though we were probably one of the first wineries to put Shannon in wood when I was at Beaumont. Yeah, uh, I desperately wanted to ferment Shannon on skins, but I, you know, you don't want to make mistakes with other people's money. So yeah, I probably played it played it a bit too safe um, when I was still down there. So the first chance I had to make my own Shannon, and that was also from bought-in grapes from a very old vineyard. Um, you know, we put it on skins and and we just yeah let it let it do its own thing and and you know treat it like a red wine. Uh, and and get it as much texture and, and complexity and, and I suppose make a thought-provoking wine, a wine mm. that's, you know, a bit of a train spotter, wine geek wine. Um, but, you know, it, because of the small volumes, it, it also hit the ground running. That was 20, 2012. So 20, 2012 was the first Shannon uh, under the Luddite label. And yeah. Unfortunately, we've had uh, a lot of cork issues, uh, you know, with the 2012, which is very disappointing because it is a lovely wine if you get the right if you get a right bottle. But a lot of a lot of uh, cork variants, a lot of Premox, unfortunately, uh, and very very frustrating in that sense because you know you can open four bottles and two will be perfect and and two will be stuffed, two will be perfect, uh, right. not not corks just totally oxidized and, and oh, because okay. there's no sulfur, because there's no sulfur in there you know the wine doesn't have a chance in hell hmm. so uh that's that that was the first vintage and then finally 2000 so 2013 was sort of half our fruit half uh, the old vineyard and then finally we phased out the old vineyard so 2015 uh Lerat, uh shannon is 100 percent our own fruit Okay. It's also the Shannon that probably caused all the shortages and the demand because it got put in a, a big Shannon tasting in um, um, in Miningers magazine, which is a, a, a sommelier magazine between all the German-speaking countries, uh, sort of Switzerland, Austria, Germany. And um, I told my agent not to put it in, and of course he did. And even though he knew that there was only, I think, 
two and a half thousand bottles or a thousand five hundred bottles. Um, it won the whole tasting, beat the crap out of everybody. And of course, everybody wanted the Shannon. And yes. So the next email, he placed, he placed an order for 6,000 bottles. I said, read the fucking bottle. There <laughs> is only 1,500. <laughs> and yeah. and since then it's been it's been a problem because I, we've just been frustrating people um, not being it's able to get It's a good problem though, Neil. So there are worse problems to have, isn't there? Uh, no, sure, but it's it's you know I think you know it, it, it's too big, it's too acute a problem. Nobody gets to you know nobody gets to taste it at the end of the day, and nobody gets to get any of it. It's it's just too small a volume. No, so I'm hoping that. Um, I'm hoping that we will get, uh, you know, there'll be a difference in taste because it's a different vineyard block. Yeah. But I'm I'm hoping that the our new Shannon Blanty will give us a, a half decent crop for 2021, mm -hmm. and that we'll go somewhere to being able to spread the love because at the moment we, you know, we we haven't even, you know, we we sort of did a mock charge release of the wine, but we haven't really let it out of the cellar door um at all and and it's yeah it's a shame because i'm i'm very very proud of the 2019 vintage it's yeah. uh, it's really showing beautifully and 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 i think it's going to make some really awesome waves in the industry for us cool man. um and then you've got two yeah, two yeah, seven two wines as well so you got the white and the yeah, red so the, so the red so came the, first didn't it yeah so the red became the red came more as a as a as a not as a default, but because of uh, some very strict blending of the twenty of the two thousand and nine Luddite, mm. and I, you know, I only I set out just to make one wine, and then I suppose idle hands we end up making more. Mm. But I, I'd, I'd made a scary amount of Sauvignon Blanc in my life, and um, so I had a lot of experience with Sauvignon. Um, and I was making quite a bit of white wine for other people, and I suddenly thought, you know, well, why don't we bring out a saboteur white? Um, so we brought, we brought Shannon in for that, and we don't go the, the full Monty on that in the sense that if we only give it a little bit more, a little bit of time on skins during ferment as opposed to the, the Luddite Shannon, which can spend 22 days on skins. Um, and it doesn't spend as much time in barrel as the as the Luddite Shannon. So it was, uh, I suppose, the thinking behind it was to bring out a, a wine, for want of a better word, and I hate this word, cash flow wine, but uh, a wine that, you know, we could sell a bit quicker and that would be on the market a bit quicker. And so we do, we, we, we get that out of barrel sort of eight months down the line and we release it and the, and the initial vintages of that also sold out quicker than we could imagine. And, and we're still in the state where we don't know how big Saboteur is going to get. We're still feeling our way with that, mm -hmm. but it has a lovely, it has a lovely following and it, and it's got a great response in the market. Um, so with all that experience, we decided to go with Shannon, um, Shannon Voigne and then some Sauvignon for freshness. That blend obviously changes every year as well. And then um, the Saboteur Red, which we were supposed to be talking about, the the Saboteur Red uh, 2009, we were sitting around the table doing the final blend for the Shiraz. And bear in mind that was our first vintage in our cellar and we, we'd obviously bought in a lot of new wood because I didn't want to bring in old wood from other cellars and contaminate our cellar. So we were dealing with, um, yeah, a wine that was probably a bit too over the top for, for Luddite, but too Californian, let's say. And so we kept all the new wood out of, out of the final blend. In fact, all the new wood and second full. And yeah, I, <laughs> uh, now I'm sitting with a, with 5,000 liters of extraordinary Shiraz. It wasn't bad Shiraz. It was just this real, uh, show stopper, show wine, brand new wood, and and just yeah, too sexy. So I spent a year fiddling with <laughs> too sexy for needles. Yeah, forty six. And so I spent spent uh, a year just tinkering in the cellar with it. You know, just trying to see what what how could I rein this wood back and how could I rein the size of the wine back. 
And so we fiddled with, you know, we've got cab and move out on the farm as well. So we, we fiddled with that until we came up with a blend that we thought would be, would be really work nicely. And we released 6,000 bottles of that, the first vintage, and it was gone, yeah, three months done. You know, so that also hit the ground running. So we've been very lucky that every wine we've released has, has found, you know, an instant liking, which is, which is mm. certainly helps. And As you've said, I mean, so, you've done it. You've done it slowly over a long period of time. So it's not like you're trying to release, you know, six new wines every year or you know, in one year. It's, yeah, you know, yeah. You've been at it since uh, since 2000, and it's now 2020, and you've you've still only got four wines. So I think that's yeah, um, yeah. you know that's testament yeah. to what you talked about earlier in terms of saying, you know, think think twice, act once. Yeah, no, exactly. I think, uh, and and the big thing for us is we we didn't want. You know, the reason why uh, we went for such a big label change in 2014, you know, the, the Saboteur label looked quite different at the time. Yeah. And when we released the first uh, Saboteur White, we thought, well, let's, I, I don't want this to look like it comes from the same stable because it's not a, it's not a second wine. It's not a second label. It's, it's a first label of Saboteur and it's, you know, it's different style. But it's still top quality. We're not we're not trying to compromise on quality. I don't want it ever to be wine that doesn't make it into a certain blend because the wine wasn't good enough. It doesn't make it into the blend because stylistically it would suit this wine better. Yeah. Um, and and you know so I think the saboteur offers unbelievable value for money because it's top stuff going in there, and uh, and it's fun. You know, it's a fun wine. It's uh, it's it's more approachable. It's got a lot of Juicy fruit, um, certainly on the red, and uh, but yet it's got serious tannins and structure and body for people who want to lay the wine down. And they, you know, we opened in 2009 the other day. And those wines are still drinking beautifully, and, and they will age for those people who want to age them. Awesome. Uh, we've obviously on the packaging we've gone with the crown cap. We still don't know how how that crown cap is going to show in 10 years' time. Mm. We were quite excited after five years. I think you were at that tasting. Yeah, we tasted the Saboteur Red after five years, didn't we? Under under Crown Cap and right. uh, under Cork, and the Crown Cap looked much better, yeah, to be honest. Obviously, that was one bottle uh, tasting, so it's not a huge sample size, but uh, yeah. yeah, but they're both side yeah. by side. Yeah. So yeah, so it's it's you know it's interesting times. I mean, I mm. still. I, I don't know where, you know, ideally I'd love to have, you know, on the, on the Shiraz, we're looking, we're looking dire because of the, of the climatic conditions we've had. We, you know, that wine's going to be on allocation now, unfortunately, mm -hmm. and that's not something I really want to do, but you know, we've, we're going to have four or five vintages where we don't have a lot of wine to go around. Yeah. Um, and hopefully the Saboteur pick up the slack for that. Um, but we still don't know how much wine we need to bottle on, on the saboteur. You know, we're still trying to see where, what the sort of market feel is, what what we can comfortably sell in a 12-month period. And um, and when I say that, I want it. It must be, you know, the wine must be able to sell itself comfortably in that 12-month period. Yeah. Um, so that we, so we don't have to worry about it. And uh, you know. We've gone from 6,000 bottles to 30,000, 32,000 on the Sav Red. So it's a, it's a big jump over in, in sort of 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and, and it, and we Especially for, a, for a small family owned, you know, winery that, you know, has yeah. What, yeah. three people running it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm very lucky that I've, I've managed to have access to this fruit since 2008 and I've, mm -hmm. and I've walked a long way with, it, with these vineyard blocks. So long may continue that I can carry on sourcing that fruit. Um, and, and we'll find, it'll find its own way. But, you know, in the ideal world, you know, if you said to me, what would you like in five years time? I'd love to be able to say, uh, I'd love to have 30,000 bottles of the Blood Eye Chiraz. And and probably fifty of the white and fifty of the red saboteur and mm -hmm. Shannon. I'd love to have ten thousand bottles. That's never going to happen. So, yeah. um, you know, the the big thing is if we keep to making only the Luddite label from our own fruit, which I think is paramount and very important, and to have that integrity is very important, so that people that follow our wines know that what they're getting and they know where that uh, plot of land or, or 
that vineyard block where it comes from and there's some traceability to it all and there's some integrity to to those wines yeah. um you know so that's that's that important sense. it's very tempting it's very tempting to say well shit we we've only got five thousand bottles of the Lodite this year let's buff some of the uh shiraz that would go into saboteur in there but that would be defeating you know you know 15 16 years worth of hard work so yeah um 20, no, that, 20 and, that's, years of and that's one of those things that separates you know you from from a lot of other people i guess in, in the industry um so yeah thanks for your time Niels. just before i let you go though i just wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions about what you're drinking and who what what's your what are you buying at the moment either locally or internationally what are you what are you what are you getting excited about in terms of wine yeah i sort of sometimes think that maybe um i i get too blinkered on on the stuff i buy in but it's also i suppose what's available in the market here to buy in easily mm-hmm. um yeah obviously i'm trying to drink more south african uh, if i look at my own private cellar underneath the house the south african section is is a lot bigger than uh, than, than the foreign section. Mm. Yet I always, when I go down there, come out with a foreign bottle. So now I'm forcing <laughs> myself to drink South African. Mm-hmm. And um, so I suppose in general, we, we tend to drink obviously what we make as well. So a lot of, we drink a lot of Shannon's from, from South African producers. I always enjoy seeing what styles are out there. Um, I drink a lot of, uh, obviously a lot of the Rhone varietals. Um, enjoying seeing what people are getting up to with Grenache in this country. And then on the international side, you know, if, if the funds are available, then we we certainly love uh, drinking uh, champagne if we can. Uh, but I do obviously have a big leaning to the Rhone Valley. I probably drink an inordinate amount of Chateauneuf-du-Pape. Um, and, you know, again, seeing what people are doing with Grenache. Mm-hmm. Um, I do... I don't have a lot of Bordeaux uh, in the cellar, mm-hmm. but I try and drink a bit more Spanish, a bit more Italian, and uh, some of the Portuguese wines that are becoming available, certainly enjoy drinking them. Yep. But yeah, in a nutshell, I suppose, from a foreign perspective, we probably, Loire, Rhone, Champagne is probably yep. what's uh, on the foreign side and on the South African side. I'm happy to drink anything as long as it's good, uh, but I like seeing what what people are up to. Yeah, and so if if people if if people wanted to if you wanted to recommend some wines that uh, if people like the Luddite wines, what are, what other wines in South Africa would you sort of steer them towards so after they've come and bought some Luddite from you? What, where do you point them down the hill to Beaumont? I'm assuming, and where else? Yeah, Beaumont. I think uh, what the, what um, what the team at um, at Gabriel's Clough are doing of late uh, Peter Allen's the landscape series is there's some good stuff coming out there I think at 2017 ones certainly of the I think they've got three Shirazes now they're all showing beautifully now um, in Kirby Fulun down at Vion Wines he's uh, he's hitting it out the park I'm really very excited with what he's up to and um, making some great wines uh, uh, outside of this valley you know I'll probably, you know, some people will choke on their afternoon tea, but uh, some <laughs> of the pinots that are coming out of Newton Johnson and uh, from Hunterstone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I never never thought I'd recommend a Pinot Noir ever, um, but I've, I've been enjoying those wines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ataraxia, Kevin Grant's Chardonnays, you know, especially when they've got a bit of age on them, are just very, very special. Um, and I think, you know, and Elgin... I think the Chardonnays that are coming out of there are very special. Um, I think Van Almond Kirk's Shirazes, now that their vineyards are getting older, are starting to do really well. Um, and then Stellenbosch way, yeah, I'm, you know, there's, uh, I think, I think the Boschkloof wines, and it's interesting to see, you know, what the younger generation have, have made a big difference. Uh, you know, they've shaken up Jacques a bit and uh, the wines are really starting to perform. And I'm, yeah. you know, I'm in the same position. I'm lucky that Alice is joining in and it's yeah, nice, to get some yeah. nice to get some fresh ideas. Um, some know, fresh energy as well. There's a different, different energy. Yeah. Different energy, different take on certain things. And, you know, by her asking questions, it makes me think about things again as well, which is great. 
and I encourage I always encourage you to ask as many questions as possible and and that's 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 been really really exciting having you on board um, so you know it, it keeps me on my toes which is good and it makes me think things through twice you know whereas a lot of the stuff you know you get into a little bit of a rut and you do things the same because that's how you've been doing them and when you have somebody questioning you you think well maybe we should try something different so there will be yeah there will be slight slight stylistic changes in the next couple of years no doubt uh, coming out of the cellar um so that's something to look forward to and something exciting but uh the lot nature as i still think is going to remain around the 14 and a half 14 mark yeah right <laughs> so, <laughs> but hopefully <laughs> Hopefully we'll hopefully we'll continue to maintain that balance and that dryness of finish, which keeps everybody refreshed and hopefully keeps people buying the wine. Perfect. All right, mate. Thank you very much, Neil. So I really appreciate this and uh, give my love to Penny and uh, and stay safe. Will do. Thank you very much, David. Cheers, hopefully mate. you can make some sense of all of that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> See you, mate. All right. Good stuff.